Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested in this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, join Gelt. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder, a founder that has done it multiple times, you know, building, scaling, financing, all the good stuff that we like to hear. I think that the um, episode today, I'm sure that you're all going to find it very inspiring. I mean, right now she's on her next baby, her next company, and it's all about helping founders. And I think that we're going to be able to uh, have a really nice chat around that, and I'm sure that you're all going to enjoy it. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Tanis George. Welcome to the show. Hi, Alejandro. How are you? So originally from Canada. So uh -huh. uh, give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? <laughs> you know what? I was very fortunate. I I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. My dad, um, my dad's main occupation was a door-to-door -door vacuum cleaner salesman. Can you imagine that? Obviously, it was the 70s. And that was something you could do back then. You could knock on people's doors. And uh, so my dad was very successful in that. And growing up, a lot of the sales principles that he would uh, you know, build into his sales team were things that he taught me as I was growing up. So I think that the nurture side of my entrepreneurship came from my dad, you know, telling me stories about sales and, and, and regaling um, all these memories that he had and helping me to see the world through the lens of a salesperson, really. And so that was, that was my childhood in many ways, uh, you know, self-motivation, understanding life as a numbers game, those kind of things were what I think really fed into me. And I think that you are very lucky because I find that that's one of the toughest things, you know, an entrepreneur needs to um, or encounters, you know, right, which is like, hey, you got to you got to sell this thing is who cares, you know, if they like you, if they don't like you, you're going to get rejected. So I'm sure that you learned quite a bit from your dad about rejection. Yeah, well, actually, my dad told me his main quote that he would say to me was Tannis, life is a numbers game. Everything is about playing the numbers. And if you work long enough and hard enough, you'll succeed at whatever you're at. And that was sort of the premise of whenever I came to him with an idea or if I came to him with something, oh, I want to do this. He'd say, great. I remember one time I wanted to go do a dog walking service. He's great. He's like, yeah, no problem. Knock on enough doors in the neighborhood. You'll get some dogs. And I was like, okay, that's, you know, it actually simplified life for me in a lot of ways. 
when you take that analogy and you apply it to life, then life seems actually relatively simple. You just got to put the numbers in. So let, let, let's let's go into numbers. Let's go into numbers yeah. and into business. Because in 1999, you know, that's when, you know, you, you created your first company. So what was that the sequence of events that needed to happen for you to bring iQuiry to life? Yeah. So actually, I started my first business with my best friend in high school. So Stephen and I went to high school together. Um, we shared, we had lockers beside each other for five years. And basically... What ended up happening was after school, Steve came across an idea, a business idea that he found in the U.S. that wasn't available in Canada. And he approached me and said, hey, do you want to build a, this business with me? And it was in, in the identity space. And honestly, um, <laughs> I don't think either of us had much of a passion for uh, identity. But what we did enjoy was doing projects together. We learned that in school. We, we enjoyed spending time together. And in a way, our first company was just an extension of a school project uh, in many ways. And so uh, when he approached me about the business, I, to me, it was just it was going to be a fun way for us to do something together and be productive. So iQuery was born that way. And it took three years. We raised um, we didn't raise any money. We bootstrapped it. But his parents and a few family friends, uh, you know, gave us our first investment. And three years later, it was acquired by Experian. And, uh, you know, that was our first taste of, of the ability to take something from idea and turning it into a reality. And not an easy time either, because, I mean, during that time, you know, obviously anything online was a, was, was like incredible. There was like a lot of hype, but then, you know, it was the dot-com bust. So, exactly. you know, you, you guys ultimately were able to survive that, which I'm sure it was not easy. So what, what did that, you know, teach you about cycles when it comes to building companies? Yeah, you know, I think one of the takeaways from that was just really believing in your product and not, you know, not not that you can't be concerned about what's going on around you. But if you're so focused on your product and what you're trying to achieve, you just work with what you have. And I think that if you're working in a down cycle, then you, I don't know, you just, you just make it work. And I think that's the thing. You don't worry about the challenges that you can't control. You only worry about the ones that you can. And I think that was what we focused on. Um, we weren't able to raise money. We tried for a little bit and that didn't happen. So it just was like, well, then I guess we just keep going. And you get lean. I think in that or in that business, we learned to run very lean. And we carried that um, practice through all of our companies. And I think that's what served us extremely well is we run very lean ships, no matter how much uh, runway we have. We we always run very tight and very lean. So once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So yes. in CB, after this transaction, you know, that you did with iQuery, I mean, obviously the uh, next idea comes knocking. So tell us about that. Again, our space is very, um, very small and very niche. And so it's a lot of the same players. And so we uh, were reached out to by an organization and said, hey, here's an opportunity. And we were able to take it. And so that, again, was another or uh, another business idea that we explored and bootstrapped ourselves once again, and ended up finding ourselves back in a working business model that we could take advantage of. But for, for the first three companies that we had, 
really our idea was to be acquired. The intention was to take it to a certain level. And we ha- we always identified who our exit and who the acquirer would be. And so we built our businesses in a way that would make them um, easily, easy to digest for the acquirers that we had in mind. We made sure that it, you know, the branding match there so that the, the, the switchover was going to be simple for them. It became very easy for us to pitch and say, hey, we're at, at a space now where you might want to acquire us. And so that was even the same with NCB Data Services as well. So, so, so when, you, when you're talking about, you know, building a company with the idea of selling it down the line, I mean, how does that relationship, um, you know, building trust with that potential acquirer and then really activating the switch for a transaction to happen. How, how does that look like? Yeah, I think one of the things that we, we did was we identified where they were lacking. And of course, as a startup, the great thing about it is you can be very, you're very malleable and you're very, it's easy for you to move. They're big Titanics and we're small canoes. So we would identify issues where they were lacking and we would find ways to fill that gap. We understood their business really, really well. And so we found ways to fill that gap. And and basically, eventually it became a conversation of what, are you going to go build this yourself? Why don't you just take us on. And now you, you fill that gap for yourself. And so that, that was sort of the mind frame that we would look at and be like, well, where are they lacking? How can we be that band-aid, let's say, uh, in their, where they needed in their business? And we just kept popping up and they kept saying, oh, you guys again. <laughs> and they even tried to hire, uh, they tried to hire us as well. We said, no, we make, we make more when we build companies and sell them to you than if we were your employees. So no uh, that was one way. Because it was also the same company with the NCB that you sold to. I mean, Experian. I mean, second transaction. Huh? Unbelievable. I guess at this point, you know, on this second deal, what did you learn from the first time around with iQuery, you know, that you also sold to Experian that you knew you wanted to make sure that that lesson you wanted to implement it in this transaction? Well, we learned in the first uh, sale of the company, the methodology of acquisition. Um, you know, we learned negotiation, we learned strategy, we had a better idea the second time around how do you handle that sales and acquisition process? What what are the bluffs that you? It's like a poker game, right? You know, where, when can you show your hand and when not, and how do you manipulate that process? And so, I think one of the things we got very good at was understanding that acquisition process and and you know tweaking it to our advantage. So then, let's talk about the next baby, Faros. So Faros Global Strategies. So what was what was Faros Global Strategies about? Yeah, that was a unique opportunity that allowed us to uh, help another organization uh, expand internationally. We had contacts. And I think this is an interesting thing for entrepreneurs. If you have an excellent network, you can be well aligned to assist companies to uh, facilitate those introductions. Coming in as as a trusted source to an organization who's able to bring value, I think that you can build a business around that. And that's what we did. We had a lot of uh, our network in our space with different organizations around the world. And this particular company understood that about our positioning. And so they came to us and said, you know, would you facilitate? And we ended up building a company around that, help them to expand globally. And then eventually we just had built well enough of a business that for them it was worth acquiring us and taking the business on. 
Yeah, I mean, one thing that uh, I find here quite um, interesting as a pattern is that it's like two to four years, you know, the mark on those on those three companies. Basically, I mean, what, every three years. Yeah. And, and what's what's what happens there? I mean, is there like a, a point in time where, boom, something clicks, you know, around that time frame where now the company is mature enough to be able to activate the M&A switch? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it was. You know, we got to a position in all three companies where we had shown that uh, the product was viable. It was launched really for us. It was getting, you know, the marketing side and the, and the early scaling side for us was was not our forte. And I would almost go so far as to say at that point, it still wasn't really our passion. We loved starting companies. That whole thing of here's a need in the market and that exciting moment of trying to figure out how do we solve this problem. That was a very exciting thing for us. So for us, um, the acquisition portion and, and selling the baby, I can tell you're an entrepreneur because you use the word baby. You, you understand. Um, selling that baby was very comfortable because we knew that um, it was going to do better and bigger in the hands of, a, of an organization who had the funding and the money to be able to take it to the next level. So we were comfortable to pass it on at that point. Now, the next company that comes in, okay, Trulio. I mean, a little bit different no, than the, uh, the, the previous uh, three babies, no, I would say. But, uh, but how, how, how did the idea of Trulio come about? I mean, obviously, similar in nature of, uh, you know, the, the previous ones were around credit. I mean, this one, you know, was more about verification. But tell us about Trulio. Yeah, so Trulio um, came at a time. So we had just built three companies, took us about 10 years to do it. And now we were, for me, I was at a bit of a different life stage. We did, we, we built those companies all in my twenties. And by the end of that, I decided, you know what, I, I'm ready to start a family, kind of try something different. And, uh, Steven felt that, you know what, I, I want to head to Silicon Valley. I want to experience that and explore one of the ideas that we had had, um, uh, in that, in the, still in the identity space, but in the verification space. And so, uh, he said, I'm going to go there. So he went down to Silicon Valley, uh, did some R and D down there. And I, I stayed in Vancouver, um, and we explored some opportunities. And eventually at some point we started to realize that what we had, um, come up with had some big possibilities. And so the idea was, you know what, this time let's raise money this time. Let's go big. And the idea as well was not to sell it within three years. The goal this time was to see how far we could take it. And so uh, we, we had a much longer vision for the company at this point. And Stephen um, went down, did the R&D, uh, took about a year and a half before we raised our first round, our seed round, uh, hundreds, uh, well, over 100 uh, different interviews with VCs that it took. Uh, what we were building was very innovative, very disruptive. Uh, we really had to convince people that um, we knew what we were talking about. And those 10 years of building companies put us in a place as, as the expert. And as you know, when you're raising money, usually the beginning uh, seed round is not about necessarily the idea. It's about the founders. And so yeah. we really you know, fell back on our reputation as leaders in our industry and said, trust us. We know what we're doing. And uh, we needed a VC and eventually found one who believed that. And I guess, hey, for the people that are listening to get it, you know, what ended up being the business model of Trulio? Yeah, so we were, um, we grew into being one of the world's largest identity verification companies in the world. Um, and uh, it, it, it shifted a bit. Our, our product offering shifted throughout those years. 
Um, and it, and uh, it ended up, you know, being right in our wheelhouse uh, all the way through. And eventually, yeah, it grew to be uh, the world's largest identity verification company. And and you were talking about this earlier. I mean, when when you guys got started with this, you wanted to do it differently. You wanted to do it differently. I mean, you all were in different stages. You know, now you were not in your 20s anymore. I mean, we all get old. I mean, we got we to face it. But, you know, like in this case, you guys decided that it was going to be a different route. Why with Trulio did you choose the VC route? Because, I mean, in my in my mind, you know, the VC route is it's a little bit more scary and more hyper growth and more pressure than the bootstrap route. So why did you choose to do it differently with Trulio then? Because we were building something that had never been done before. And we knew that in order to do that, we needed, we needed capital, significantly more capital than we, were, we, we had even, <laughs> even if we wanted to. We knew it was going to need to be bigger. And, and honestly, Eljandro, it was the w excitement of trying something new. Like it, it was the challenge. It was the challenge of taking on the a different model. It was the challenge of seeing how big we could take something, you know, we had had never taken it too, too far. Previously, like I said, we sold in three years. So we never really got to scale a company and experience that. And I think one thing that Stephen and I uh, both really enjoy is uh, novelty and new experiences. And so eventually, we felt confident enough in our ability to take something from ideation to reality. And then it became, okay, well, let's experience what it is to scale a company and let's see what that looks like. And so that's where, how truly you was able to go that next level. I think our mind frame was different. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domain. So I mean, obviously if you're a startup or an entrepreneur, you got to be super careful on how you go about your presence and how you get the catchy domain. And that's why I recommend .tech Domains as the go-to place to really get your own domain. Uh, a good example here is Aurora.tech which is an innovative brand that has the .tech domain associated to it. Aurora.tech actually works at the intersection of rigorous engineering to address one of the most challenging issues of our generation, which is transforming the way that people and goods move. It is set to launch Horizon, which is Aurora's first autonomous service that's designed to bring safety, value, and efficiency to carriers and fleet owners. I've actually arranged an amazing deal for all of you and that is you can get your one-year domain for $10 or a five-year domain for $50. Just go to go.tech forward slash dealmakers. And that's, again, go.tech forward slash dealmakers to get your own. And on that R&D process, you know, as you were, I mean, one year and a half is a long time. I mean, what were you guys looking for there? And at what point were you like, I think we hit a nerve with this. I think we got it now. I think we're ready. Yeah, you know. We knew what the market needed, and it was a matter of convincing the VCs that we knew what we were talking about. And I think it was honing our pitch. It was honing our messaging. I think one of the key things that we did was we went out and built a board of advisors that was stellar. Uh, these folks were some of the best in their industry, the top in the top in our world, whether it was in the technology that we were trying to put together or in the, um, the, the philosophy or the theology behind identity. Because there's a lot of um, there's a lot of theories about how we as humans should be identified 
both in the physical space as well as the online. So we really went out and found the people who were leading the charge in, in how that was going to be done, both um, in an enterprise and as well in government. And so we went out and we found these folks that were instrumental. We put them on a board of advisors. And so we were able to eventually have this really incredible leadership team that was um, standing there saying, I'm an expert and I know the world needs this. And eventually that got built up enough that finally a VC went, I can't, I, this is a team worth um, taking a chance on. And how do you get advisors like that, you know, like with really high profiles to, um, to engage and to say, hey, you know what, I'll put my name on this because at the end of the day, you know, we're talking about very successful people and I'm sure that very successful people are always like very careful as to where they associate their name with. So how were you able to really sell them on that compelling future for them to jump on? We put ourselves where they were. So that was one of the things we did early on. Um, in, in the identity space, there's often a lot of conferences, say, around the world that are, that are discussing the topic. And uh, so we would attend these and we would put ourselves out there quite heavily. And we would be very uh, vocal about our opinion of where this went. And so what ended up happening is a lot of these uh, folks ended up seeing us having conversations with us. Uh, we always let our reputation lead. And so eventually they they got to know who we were and the kind of people and our vision. And that was something that I think compelled them when we said, listen, and we were always um, very acknowledging that we don't have all the answers as much as we're the experts. We don't have all the answers and they have a really key component uh, to help move this, uh, take this movement forward. And so we, we humbly would go to them and just say, listen, we're not looking for much. We're looking for your guidance and your mentorship in exchange for some options and equity. Why don't you join our advisor team and help us build this incredible company that's going to go out and save the world? And so uh, I think after getting to know us and see that we were committed you know, we weren't just an email that was shot out out of nowhere. They saw us in Japan. They met us in San Francisco. They saw us in London. They saw us at these events and recognized these people were committed to what they're doing. They're not just, you know, sitting in an office somewhere and sending out emails. These guys are really trying to make something happen. So how much has Trulio raised to date? Oh my goodness. Uh, so for us, we had the largest raise here in Canada. Series D was our largest, which was just over 430 million. And then I think over uh, the other years, oh my goodness, probably an additional 150 million plus um, over that. So yeah. And I mean, we're talking about the, in the billions, almost the, uh, the valuation. I mean, I think that the, what it has been reported is close to 2 billion, which is a remarkable. Tannis. Yes. I mean, yes. how how was the um how how did the um because obviously you guys turned the corner eventually on the capital raising side of things as you were building the the advisory board, but how did that journey of raising from one cycle to the next? How did that uh, you know go over time, and how did you see expectations shifting from investors? Yeah, uh, one of the things that I often recommend to early entrepreneurs, startup entrepreneurs, is to raise money in the valley, or especially in the very beginning. For us, we were really able to leverage the fact that we were a Silicon Valley uh, funded company from the early onset. And that's, that gave the company a bit of a 
panache, for lack of a better term, uh, when we went out and continued to speak with investors. Um, obviously, the expertise in the Silicon Valley is is incredible in the VCs, and, and David uh, Blumberg from Blumberg Capital was our first investor. Uh, being able to have him um, as our sort of flagship initial investor and bring him along um, on the, our investment journey was extremely helpful. So that was a big key piece. I mean, I give my co-founder, Stephen, incredible uh, credit because it was him who really pushed the the fundraising you know when you're when you have a co-founder partnership you you have lanes and Steven's lane was the fundraising and what what he has an incredible talent for is sharing the vision of the company he honed that message in such a way that most people when they heard what we were trying to do were excited and compelled whether or not they were the right VC was one thing but everyone really understood our vision and saw what we were trying to do. And Stephen has an incredible knack for casting vision. And so that was a key piece through every fundraise was helping people to see what needs to happen and what, what is possible. And I think you need to be able to, as a fundraiser, as a fundraiser to be able to, to get granular and talk about the details of the company, but also really be able to, um, to, to really cast that vision so people feel part of it and see the possibility. Now, around 2021 and, and also 2022, I mean, literally, by nothing apart, you and Steven, you know, leave the company. I mean, we're yes, talking about the incredible, you know, rocket ship, uh, unbelievable company, hundreds of employees, uh, crazy valuation, crazy amount of race. I mean, why did you guys decide to step off the rocket ship. Yeah. Well, you know what? I think I think for Stephen and I, um, you know, we always were, were humble enough to say that um, there, there may come a point when we're not the best person to be to take something to the next level, and what that is either a because of a skill set or B, because we as entrepreneurs are ready for a change. And I think we recognize that passion is so important in being a leader of a company. And if you lose that passion, or if you're, if you don't, if you start to look at greener pastures, then that might be the time to consider stepping back. And, and I think, I mean, Stephen and I probably had two different reasons why we left. I left earlier on because I, as, as I mentioned, when we started truly, I had two kids under the age of three and I was juggling familyhood and, and running a startup at the same time. And for me, it got to the point where I was tapped and I was unable to do both well. And so I decided to move towards the family side of things and, and find, but we had to wait until I could find an incredible person who was able to fill that space and the right person. And we did find that through Zach Cohen, but, um, um, for Steven, it was the same, same sort of scenario. Uh, he's an incredible CEO. Uh, he, he understands this business better than anybody. Um, but even for him too, I think, um, you know, a combination of, a desire to step out of the role um, and see somebody who can take it to the an even bigger heights. And then also when you're an entrepreneur, there's other ideas that are always in your back pocket and, and lifestyle is important for an entrepreneur. So I think that I'm not going to speak for Stephen, but I, I know that those are two things that are very exciting um, and eventually could pull you away from your baby. 
So entering the co-founders hub. Yes, sir. What are you up to now, Tanis? You know, what's this about? So as an advisor for many startup founders, I found myself frequently being asked, how have you and Steven managed to build four companies over 20 years together and you haven't killed each other? <laughs> you know, that was, the, that was the premise of the question. And uh, I reflected on that and I thought, well, you know, we, while it wasn't always uh, rainbows and sunshine, uh, we did obviously do that well. And I reflected on that and came to realize that a lot of business partnerships were what I call silently suffering. And what that meant was they were having issues with the relationship and the partnership, but they had nobody to talk to. I mean, you can't talk to your investors, you can't talk to your employees, you can't talk to these people around you, and you kind of have to figure it out on your own. And I realized there was not a lot of tools. So I decided to research, interview ton of founders, and I ended up writing a book called The Co-Founders Handbook. And this book is a guide taken from the trenches of co-founders who've gone before and help people to start that partnership from the very first question, should I get a co-founder? That part there, all the way to who should I look for? Where do I find them? How do I legalize this partnership? How do I build a strong partnership? How do I exit a partnership? The book covers the full gamut from the beginning to end. It's the essential book for anyone in a partnership. And I wanted that out there because I have a passion for entrepreneurship. I think it's the cornerstone of strong economies and strong countries. And I think assisting entrepreneurs is like the most important thing that we can do. And so this is my way of adding my unique perspective after 20 years of doing that. This is my way of feeding into that process for entrepreneurs to build great companies. So then what, uh, what, what, where are things heading with the Co-Founders Hub? Yeah, so the Co-Founders Hub is a platform that provides uh, products and services for entrepreneurs to build partnerships. So no matter what stage you're in, uh, we will have masterclasses that you can undertake so that you can be intentional in that partnership and make sure that you're building a strong foundation and not unintentionally doing things in that relationship that can eventually break it apart. Because most people start a partnership. It's like a honeymoon phase, right? Like no, nothing bad is going to happen. And they really see this being incredible. And eventually, uh, it, unfortunately, it can get cracks. And once that relationship breaks down, so oftentimes, not too far behind that is the company. And so this, um, so the, pl uh, the platform at the co-founders hub will be that source for people. We're going to do events that help uh, founders build strong partnerships. We have intentionality things throughout the week that founders can take part of. It's really the place for people in a partnership to go to. So then you go to sleep tonight, Tanis. You go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of the co-founders hub is fully realized. What does that world look like? I see it as the place where an entrepreneur who's in a partnership who has a question, who is struggling or is wondering about what they're going to do can go, oh, here's a source. Um, and here is where I can meet other co-founders who are going through what I'm going through and I don't have to feel alone. And I think that's where the, the hub is the place to be. It's the place, the source for answers. It's the source for support um, that anybody can go to at any stage. <laughs> Sense of belonging and sense of community. And I love that. I love that because, you know, the entrepreneurial journey, you know, can also be very lonely. So I think that having, you know, like that support, I, I, I really honestly believe is, is remarkable. Uh, now, 
we were talking about the future here. I want to talk about the past, but I want to talk about the past with a lens of reflection. So let's say, Tanis, I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time to 1999, you know, that moment where you're about to launch your first company, your first baby. And uh, let's say you have the opportunity of going back in time and having a chat with that younger Tanis. And let's say that that younger self was listening because our younger selves typically don't listen. So let, 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 let's say that that was the case. So listen? Wow. <laughs> well, let's, say, let's say that was the case. Uh, let's say that you're able to give that younger Tanis the one piece of advice before launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I would tell her to enjoy the journey. You know, those very beginning companies were very scary. And, you know, I, I, as I mentioned, for Stephen and I, we just had a high school education. We started our first company right out of high school. We didn't go to uni college or university or anything like that. Um, and, you know, we were learning as we went. And, of course, when you're, you know, that especially that first company, I mean, you're you're putting in the, the, the couple thousand dollars that you got in your back pocket that feels like so much. And, and for us, every company that we built, we never took a paycheck. It was, uh, you know, money went right back into the company that we made. And so it was scary. And so the stress and the concern and the fear was always present. And I think that I would tell her to, I mean, I can obviously have the hindsight but I would also still tell her, it's okay to enjoy. It's okay to breathe. It's okay to um, not worry about what's coming. Enjoy the journey. Meet the people that you know. Meet your team. Um, um, get to know folks. Have fun with your employees. Uh, just enjoy the journey. That would be what I would tell her to do. Don't be so afraid. I love that. So, Tanya, for the people that are listening, that would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so? So you can find me at LinkedIn at Tanis George. Uh, it's where I'm really focusing a lot of my efforts there and helping folks. Um, additionally, you can Instagram as well. And then at the co-founders hub, that's where you'll find other entrepreneurs who are in that same space, focused on finding other people where they can get support. And then us and our team and our experts that will be part of the organization will be there as well. So all three locations will be the best place to talk to us. Amazing. Well, hey, Tanis, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Awesome, Alejandro. Thank you. Thanks so much. It was a joy. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.